Welcome to Music for Life, exploring the purpose and value of music to humanity's enrichment. I'm your host, Ryan Malone. This is Peter Tchaikovsky's famous 1812 Overture, performed by Herbert von Karajan and the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra, and it is one of the many pieces written throughout music history to celebrate a victory of some kind, in this case, the 1812 Russian victory over Napoleon. And on today's Music for Life, we will explore compositions inspired by or intended to honor a victory, either fictional or historic. In our Sounds of Scripture segment, we will explore some of the victory songs among the Bible's many musical references and what they teach us about ancient music. And in our Classroom Corner, we will discuss the benefits of competitions for developing young musicians. All this and more on today's Music for Life, Music for Victories. On this program, we have explored a variety of external elements that inspire compositions, subject matter that becomes the focus of the composition. We've explored how composers have been inspired by nature, say water or the seasons or birds. We've explored compositions inspired by death, by laughter, by nationalism, and even by warfare itself. And a fitting continuation of the latter is a look at music inspired by victory in warfare. Victory has inspired composers throughout history, and not just victory in warfare, as we'll see. Before we get into our standard sweep of music history, let's have our Sounds of Scripture segment, where we survey the Bible's many references to music for a longer-sweeping historical perspective on our episode's theme. The biblical record contains a handful of victory songs, not just mentions of triumphs, but the fact that songs were sung in honor of those triumphs. And in this handful of cases, the lyrics to these victory songs are recorded in Scripture. What's more, each one of these victory songs, or the context surrounding them, give us specific details about the music itself, which gives us clues as to what music was like at this ancient time in history. In terms of victory songs recorded in the Bible, we have the song Israel sang on the shores of the Red Sea, we have the song that the judge Deborah composed and performed, and we have the song that the lady sang in honor of the young David's victory over Goliath. 
There's a psalm that is particularly referencing God's victory in a particular situation. And in the New Testament, in John's vision, as recorded in the book of Revelation, there is mention of a song being sung in heaven by those who obtained victory over the beast. Again, in each of these cases, we see recorded the lyrics to the songs, as well as some specific details about the music itself. Let's start with the example in Revelation 15 first and work our way backwards through the Bible. In this vision, according to verse 2, John said he saw a sign in heaven, specifically them that had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name. He saw this victorious group having the harps of God, he said. Verse 3 says they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Their victory song was in part composed by Moses, and how appropriate that they sing this song since Moses led the Israelites in celebration after their escape from Egypt, a song we'll look into in a bit. And no other composer in recorded biblical history can attest to such an honor, that of having his music performed in heaven. The lyrics to this particular heavenly song are recorded in verses 3 and 4 of Revelation 15. Another composition written to honor victory is that of Psalm 98. The opening inscription of the work simply calls it a psalm, and in this psalm we see not only references to victory, but to music itself. The first verse commands, O sing unto the Lord a new song, for or because he has done marvelous things. The verse goes on to show specifically what those marvelous things are. It says, His right hand and his holy arm has gotten him the victory. This psalm is specifically written in honor of a victorious God, compelling the psalmist to sing a new song. In verse 4, the psalmist says, To make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all the earth. Make a joyful noise and rejoice and sing praise. So you can imagine the dynamics of this particular composition. The theme of music itself continues through the next few verses. Verses 5 and 6 read, Sing unto the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the voice of a psalm. With trumpets and sound of cornet, make a joyful noise before the Lord the King. That is a reference to the silver trumpets used by the Levites, as well as the shofar, or ram's horn, translated here as cornet. The psalmist calls on all creation to join in this victorious song. Let the sea roar, verse 7 says, and the fullness thereof, the world and they who dwell therein. Verses 8 and 9 read, Let the floods clap their hands, let the hills be joyful together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth with righteousness, shall he judge the world and the people with equity. The music of nature is mentioned in this psalm. So music is mentioned in this psalm, and the music even of nature itself is mentioned. During the youth of David, shortly after he slew the giant Goliath, a victory song was sung in both his and King Saul's honor. It can be found in 1 Samuel 18, verses 6 and 7. These verses read, And it came to pass as they came, when David was returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, that the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing, to meet King Saul with tabrets, with joy, and with instruments of music. And the women answered one another as they played and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Notice these details about the performance. The women sang this song. They sang antiphonally, meaning one group would sing and another would respond. They also had tabres and instruments of music, it says. The phrase instruments of music is literally thirds in Hebrew. This could mean the women were using a triangle or a triangular-shaped instrument in their song, 
Some suggest it was a sistrum, a jingling, rattling instrument associated mostly with Egypt at that time, but also heavily associated with use by women in pagan ceremonies to use its sound to affect the spirits in certain ways. The approval, though, of the biblical chronicler of this instrument in this case may cast some doubt whether this was an instrument so commonly used in a pagan ceremony. It could have simply been a triangle. But it also may refer to them singing in the consonant intervals that we call a third today. We've shown on this program how the Hebrews had a word for octave, and that implied the space of eight notes, or an eighth as we call it. So it's not that much of a stretch to think that they would have called our third the same thing in their language. This song made quite the impact, too, which I find really interesting. Not only was this a turning point for Saul, who, based on the lyrics, grew extremely jealous of David, changing their relationship forever, but another impact from this song can be found later in David's life. In 1 Samuel 21, 10-11, the chronicler tells us that David arose and fled that day for fear of Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath, and the servants of Achish said unto him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing one to another of him in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? This is remarkable that a song from one country would be known in another part of the world at this point in history. We are reminded of that also in 1 Samuel 29, 5-6. David's reputation became known in the neighboring countries because of this song. Another famous victory song found earlier in the biblical record was in the time of the judge Deborah, after leading Israel to victory against a Canaanite army. We pick up these musical details in the record of this song as found in Judges 5. Verse 1 says, Then sang Deborah and Barak the son of Abinoam on that day, saying... Now this passage indicates the two sang together. Verse 12, the lyrics read, Awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake, utter a song. Arise, Barak, and lead your captivity captive, you son of Abinoam. Deborah was to utter a song. The word for utter can mean to lead, guide, or arrange in order. Alfred Sendry, in his book Music in Ancient Israel, writes, Even though, as the Bible indicates, the victorious general participated in this song, Deborah was, in reality, the leader of the singing, as evidenced unmistakably by two passages. Deborah was asked by the people, Awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake, utter a song. And as an introduction to her song, Deborah said, and then he quotes verse 3, where Deborah said, I unto the Lord will sing unto the Lord. Here is how verse 3 reads in the authorized version. Hear, O you kings, give ear, O you princes, I, even I, will sing unto the Lord. I will sing praise to the Lord God of Israel. Two different words are used here for singing. The first is shir, which is the more literal word for singing. The second is translated into the King James Version. The second is translated into the authorized version as sing praise. And the word praise is put in italics, indicating its absence in the Hebrew. The translators chose sing praise commonly for this Hebrew word zamar, as they did here, which literally means to pluck. So the impression we get is that the singing was typically accompanied by a string instrument, so much so that one word in the Hebrew for sing indicates plucking. 
The last victory song we'll discuss in this segment, and the first one recorded in the Bible, is one we've discussed at length in our Sounds of Scripture segments before, the Song of the Red Sea, recorded in Exodus 15. This song of Israel, celebrating God's victory over the Egyptians, contains a few interesting details about music itself. Verse 1 says, Then sang Moses and the children of Israel this song unto the Lord, and spoke, saying, I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider has he thrown into the sea. The indication is that Moses led this performance, being listed first among those singing. This indicates his musical skills, many of which he likely learned during his upbringing as a prince of Egypt. Verse 2 records the next line of the song, The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will prepare him a habitation, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. We discussed this verse in a previous episode, the one on the word hallelujah, if you want to pull that up on SoundCloud or iTunes and listen to it. Later, verses 20 to 21 read, And Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dances. And Miriam answered them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider has he thrown into the sea. This is the first biblical reference to dancing, which we see was commonly used along with a percussion instrument known as the toff, a commonly used instrument in ancient times, much like our tambourine. We also see the women singing antiphonally here as well, given the phrase, Miriam answered them. Putting all these accounts together, we see that music celebrating victories made use of a variety of instruments, that the music was often of a loud and boisterous nature, and that it could even be paired with dancing. This has been Sounds of Scripture. You are listening to Music for Life. I'm your host, Ryan Malone. This is KPCG. Today we are exploring compositions inspired by or intended to honor victory, either fictional or historic, in this episode titled Music for Victories. So we were just discussing victory songs of the Bible and what their accounts teach us about ancient music. Victory is a common theme throughout the Bible itself, and not every mention of victory in Scripture is a musical one. But these mentions of victory have certainly been the basis for triumphant compositions. One such example from the Baroque era would be a section of George Frederick Handel's oratorio, Messiah. A passage of Scripture in 1 Corinthians 15 talks about resurrection and a time when death itself is swallowed up in victory. Handel sets these verses over the course of three short movements in part three of the oratorio. The first is a recitative sung by the alto soloist, the second comes as an alto tenor duet, and finally third, the chorus sings thanks to God who gives us the victory. Here is the recording I commonly play from on this show, the 16, under the direction of Harry Christophers, Catherine Wynne Rogers and Mark Padmore are the soloists. The saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, grave, where is thy sting? 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 O
That was a solo, a duet, and then a chorus from Handel's Messiah, performed by mezzo-soprano Catherine Wynne Rogers, tenor Mark Padmore, and The Sixteen, under the direction of Harry Christophers. The subject matter for that song was celebrating victory that was about victory over death itself, as described in 1 Corinthians 15, and that was an example from the Baroque era As we move into the classical era now, let's discuss a composition inspired by more of a traditional military victory. Ludwig von Beethoven wrote a 15-minute work to celebrate the Duke of Wellington's June 1813 victory over Joseph Bonaparte at the Battle of Victoria in Spain. Next to the victory at Waterloo, this was the most significant victory over the French forces at this time. To depict both the battle and the victory, Beethoven divided the orchestra into two sections to represent the two opposing British and French armies. The work itself is divided into several sections. The first two sections, or movements, represent the drums and marching of the British side. The next two movements represent the drums and marching of the French side. sections contain tunes common to the British and French soldiers, respectively. The next few movements represent the battle, but we're going to hear the final section, or movement, titled Victory Symphony, in which the British tune God Save the King is heard and played with by Beethoven. Here is the Bavarian Radio Symphony Orchestra under Lauren Mazel.
You are listening to Music for Victories on Music for Life. I'm your host, Ryan Malone, and this is KPCG. Today we are exploring compositions inspired by or intended to honor victory, either fictional or historic. That was Wellington's Victory, the Victory Symphony movement from the end of that 15-minute work by Ludwig von Beethoven. We heard Lauren Mazel conducting the Bavarian Radio Symphony Orchestra. And now that work is similar in many ways to Tchaikovsky's 1820. 12 Overture, which I played a portion of at the beginning of the program. Tchaikovsky's work was an example from the Romantic era, the era we will explore next. Another famous example from this time period of a victory-type piece was Verdi's Aida, the triumphal march in scene two of Act Two, where Radames and the Egyptian army march into the city to celebrate their victory over the Ethiopians. Now, I've already played this on a couple of episodes, actually, so I'd like to use a different type of victory for our Romantic-era example. In the opera Turandot by Giacomo Puccini, there is a powerful moment musically where the leading male character achieves a victory, and it's not a victory in a military sense, but more of an intellectual one. See, the title character, Princess Turandot, does not want to marry any man despite her father's wishes, uh, the emperor. She has agreed, though, with him to marry any man who answers her three riddles. When Prince Kalaf, this leading male character, answers all three of her questions, the crowd erupts in an uproarious chorus of glory to the victor. Let's hear the section that contains Kalaf's answer to the last of the three riddles. Each riddle is treated in a strophic manner, meaning it's like three verses of the same melody, just different words. In the third riddle, the princess asks him, Ice that sets you on fire, and from your fire is more frosty, white and dark. If she sets you free, she makes you a slave. If she accepts you as a slave, she makes you a king. That's the riddle. He thinks for a while, seemingly stumped. She taunts him as the music gets slower and quieter, as if to depict Kalaf's failure. Finally, it dawns on him what the answer is, and he says, My victory now has given you to me. My fire will thaw you, Turandot. 
The sages read the answer from a sealed scroll. Turandot, that is the answer. Her name was the answer to that riddle. And then the crowd sings, Glory, Victor, may life smile upon you. May love smile upon you. Now the princess, a sore loser, tries to beg her father to get out of her deal, but the emperor says the oath is sacred, and the crowd tells her, He won, princess. He offered his life for you. More details of the plot move forward in this section, which aren't necessary to go into here. The point is to hear this triumphant section of Puccini's masterpiece, Turandot. Here is Luciano Pavarotti and Joan Sutherland in a recording with the London Philharmonic and Zubin Mehta conducting.
Luciano Pavarotti, Joan Sutherland, and the London Philharmonic Orchestra with Zubin Mehta conducting. That was a section of Turandot, where the main character was victorious in these three riddles that Princess Turandot leveled at him. Moving forward into the 20th century, we have a century filled with two world wars. The defeat of Nazi Germany in World War II inspired one of Russia's greatest composers of the day to write a victory symphony. Dmitry Shostakovich's Ninth Symphony is in five movements and was written in honor of the Russian victory over Nazi Germany. Shostakovich himself said, I harbor the tremulous dream of a large-scale work in which the overpowering feelings ruling us today would find expression. I think the epigraph to all our work in the coming years will be the single word, victory. But the aspect of victory that Shostakovich highlighted in his work, which you'll hear in its first movement, embodies more of the joviality, even frivolity of victory, more than necessarily the grandeur we've heard in some of the other victory compositions of today's program. Here is Rudolf Barschai conducting the WDR Symphony Orchestra of Cologne.
Rudolf Barshay conducted the WDR Symphony Orchestra of Cologne in the first movement of Dmitry Shostakovich's Symphony No. 9, The Victory Symphony. That music was meant to celebrate the Russian victory over Nazi Germany at the end of World War II. We have been discussing music inspired by the idea of victory and triumph, and not just on the battlefield. Another place victory can be achieved is in any kind of competition, and music competitions are no exception. This leads into our Classroom Corner segment, where we explore different methods and curricula for introducing young people to music. And for this segment today, we will discuss the benefits of music competitions for developing young musicians. Entering music contests can be beneficial to a young musician for a multitude of reasons. For one, they force young musicians to set goals. The student will not only learn how to set long-term goals, like being ready for the competition, but short-term practice goals that will help them achieve the larger goal. Breaking a piece down and fine-tuning every detail is just what judges look for when critiquing these performances. Competitions also provide beneficial experience with live performance, which help develop life skills like sharp focus and concentration. It's not always easy to maintain focus and concentration when nerves begin to kick in, but the more stage experience a student receives through competing, the easier it is to control those nerves. Many performers regularly face mental barriers when getting in front of an audience, but more experience will only help them overcome those challenges and learn how to control their thoughts. Young musicians may also learn how to present themselves more confidently and professionally the more they perform. Along the lines of a career path or furthering their music education, if a young musician already has experience with competitions, it should make college or conservatory auditioning much easier later on in life. Previous competitions will not only ensure repertoire is up to standard, but the previous high-pressure performance experience will help this musician perform in a more relaxed and musically mature manner when the time comes for auditions. Positive peer pressure is also a huge benefit. Looking at the achievements of others in a competition can be a great motivator. The best way to find out where a musician measures up with peers his or her own age is through competing with students around the same level, forcing them to gauge their own strengths and weaknesses as musicians, and being surrounded by others in the same position provides a great support network. Competitions also provide helpful feedback. It's one thing to receive critique from one's teacher week after week, but it's a whole other thing when it's coming from a panel of other professionals who hear the performance. Receiving this kind of feedback can provide a fresh new perspective on what improvements need to be made to a piece. And of course, if a young musician places in or wins the competition, those details can be included in future applications and resumes. This has been Classroom Corner. You are listening to Music for Life. I'm your host, Ryan Malone. This is KPCG. Today's episode is titled Music for Victories, and in it we have explored compositions inspired by or intended to honor victory, either fictional or historic, either on the battlefield or in other fields. As stated earlier, not all victories that have inspired music come from military conquests. Another aspect of human life where triumph is celebrated is in sports. 
And that leads into our dessert for today, where we end the program with an example from the popular or folk tradition or some lighter classical fare. And what I have today could be argued to be classical fare. Certainly it is orchestral and might find its way into the standard repertoire at some point. Of course, one of the most celebrated athletic events in world history is the Olympics. And to televise such an event, one needs music that captures the spirit of triumph, champions, and heroes. And perhaps no other composer would be better to do that than the great American film composer, John Williams, especially when the Olympics are being held in the United States. This particular composition we'll hear is called Summon the Heroes and was written for the 1996 Olympic Games in Atlanta. Here is the Boston Pops Orchestra with the composer conducting.
You have been listening to Music for Life, a production of KPCG 101.3 on the FM dial in Edmond, Oklahoma. From the Herbert W. Armstrong College campus, I'm Ryan Malone. Thanks for joining me.